Please sit down. So tonight, we're going to take a look at um, the opening chapters of Revelation. So if anybody needs a pew Bible, please um, put a hand up and one will make its way to you. Um, For those of you using pew Bibles, Revelation is at the back. So what we're going to focus on tonight is, is um, the messages of the seven letters sent to um, the seven churches in the second and third chapters of Revelation. But before we do that, to set the context, it's important to have the context of Revelation before we go into those letters. So we're going to start off by reading through chapter one together. Okay, So I'll read and you, you, can, you can follow in, uh, in the Pew Bibles. So from Revelation chapter one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the prophets of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty So we heard earlier this morning that the the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So this book, it begins with a statement that that there is no doubt where this is from. This is a, a vision that has been given to an angel to give to John, to give to us. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. That's how, that's how this book begins with those words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That's where this, this, this book comes from. <coughs> Excuse me. So in verse 9 it continues, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. 
I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned round, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So this book is John's account of a message given to him, the revelation of Jesus from God. And so there are seven churches mentioned, and the first one we come to is Ephesus. And the reason that we're looking at these tonight is because I was reading Revelation this week, and it struck me that in each of these letters, there are some good things that churches are praised for, And there are some not-so-good things that churches are picked up on. And although some of the imagery might not be relevant to us today, the message and the instructions certainly are. So to begin with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So the angel of the church, the angel is, is the messenger tasked with taking this message to the church. The church in Ephesus are praised. We're told in chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So they're commended for their hard work their perseverance, their endurance. So the challenge for us, can we, can we identify with those? Now, I am happily hold my hand up and say I've got relatively limited experience of churches. I was, I was at Stock and then I came here as minister in training. In both of those churches, there are people who work incredibly hard. And there are other people who drift in and out. Sometimes they work their socks off and you think, wow, how do they, how do, they do so much? But then there are other, other times when maybe they drift out. You see, the church in Ephesus is, is commended for its hard work. We should be working hard. We should be, be putting aside time in our days, in our weeks. We should be making sure that we serve the church, we work for the church. And I know many of you do, and this isn't, this isn't a dig, this is just an observation of what the church in Ephesus was commended for. Hard work, perseverance and endurance. 
when things don't go quite as we envisage, when people don't turn up to, to events or, or when we work really hard but the message just doesn't get through. Perseverance and endurance are pleasing to God. In verse 4, the letter goes on, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. You've forsaken your first love. Now hopefully we haven't forsaken our first love. Hopefully we are steadfastly committed to the love of Jesus. And we've just, we've just shown that as we gathered around the communion table and shared that. But there are times when we all fall short, when we all fail before God. It might be in our acts, it might be in our thoughts, it might be in our, de- in our, in our words, in our conversations. It might even be in something like not wanting to put a leaflet through a neighbour's door for, for fear that they might see us and think of us as that annoying Christian next door. Whatever it is, we all, at some point, need to obey the instruction in verse 5, to repent. It says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this was written to the church in Ephesus. Now, I think I'm right in saying that Ephesus now is a tourist attraction. It's ruins. The lampstand was very much removed. Now, I'm not saying that if we don't repent, then Bitteriki will be a a site of ruins visited by curious tourists in a hundred years' time. But who knows? God has the power to do that. God has the power. So repentance should be something that we practice together on a regular basis. The honest, open approach to God. God knows us inside out. So we should be open and honest with him. So the second letter to the church in Smyrna, it says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. Now, we don't live in an area where there is a huge amount of poverty, but there is poverty. There is poverty. We might not see it, but... There are people in our town and the surrounding area who rely on food banks to be fed, who rely on benefits. There are people who who struggle to make ends meet week after week, month after month, for whom life is a daily grind. But as a church, we should be saying, we know your poverty, but you are rich if you come and accept Jesus and accept his spirit. Be filled with his spirit. You might, not, you might not feel rich when you judge yourself by the standards of the world, but don't judge yourself by the standards of the world. Judge yourself by the standards of the cross. Come before the cross. Accept what was done for you. Accept the way that Jesus invites you on. And you can class yourself rich. He says, I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid. That's the second time that statement's come up. Do not be afraid in verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death. 
He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Now, hopefully, none of us face that at the moment. But I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago now who said it, it, the, the time could conceivably come when we could be in a, in a Muslim-majority country in four or five generations' time and where practising Christianity could be outlawed. We could find ourselves in prison, just like non-conformists of, of centuries gone by did. When that comes, when that time comes, if that time comes, would we be ready for that challenge? It's a big question. And we don't know until we're there, and hopefully we'll never be there. We, we, we trust in God. But if we're put to that test, will we patiently endure? Will we be prepared to suffer? Will we be faithful even to the point of death? The, the letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's the type of saviour I like. Sharp, double-edged sword. Then there's a bit of a threat. Verse 13, I know where you live. <coughs> where Satan has his throne. This was not an easy place to worship. This was not a, a, a place, um, this was not a good old Billericay. This was a place where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So a church can be in the worst possible town. It can be in the worst possible situation. But we shouldn't judge churches by where they are. We should judge churches by what they are. We shouldn't be judged by where we are. We should be judged by what we are and the difference that we make. That's how we'll be judged. The difference that we make. Whether we stand out. Whether we take that narrow path. Whether we take the difficult option. Or whether we bend to the whim of the world around us. But of course the church hasn't got it all right in Pergamum. And there's, there's talk of idolatry. There's talk of some people attending the church who have been enticed to worship Israelite idols. To, eat, to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, sorry. By committing sexual immorality. Again, the instruction, repent, therefore. You see, again, the letter to the church, he says, it's never too late. Whatever's happened, whatever's gone on, whatever, whatever you've done, repent. Come before Jesus, confess what, you, what you've done. It's not too late, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This theme of repentance is clear. The image that we get is that when judgment comes, the church will be judged just as much as anything and anyone else. So the third letter to the church in Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are blazing like fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. The church has grown. There are more initiatives. They're reaching out to more and more people. They're becoming bold in their faith. Nevertheless, I have this against you. 
you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. It goes on to speak of the sexual immorality, the idolatry, the temptations that have been brought into the church by this woman. But the instruction to the church, the instruction to the church comes in verse 25. Only hold on to what you have until I come. So what does that mean? What, what do we have? What do we have to hold on to? What doesn't change from age to age? What doesn't come and go? What isn't controlled? The Bible. The Word of God. The Word of God isn't, isn't changing from generation to generation. It's the unchanging. It stays the same. It's the same now as it was when it was, when it was first put together. It's been translated, yes, there are, there are different translations we might pick and choose, but the message of Scripture remains the same. Hold on to it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't preach what itching ears want to hear. Instead, we should only preach what is in the Scriptures. Hold on to what you have. We should hold steadfastly to the Bible. We should hold on to Scripture. We should live our lives on that narrow path that was spoken about this morning, holding on. The next letter to the church in Sardis. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, I know your deeds. You see, again, this message comes through time and time again that, that wherever you are, whichever church you go to, wherever nationality you are, God knows your deeds. God knows you intimately. He knows where you live. He knows the hardships. He knows the pain, the suffering. He knows our deeds. He knows our deeds. And therefore, our deeds should honour him. He says, you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. We shouldn't live on our reputation. We should not. We cannot. Because a reputation is very fragile. Billericay's got a great reputation. When I'm at Spurgeon's and I tell people I'm from Billericay Baptist Church, um, there are some people who have never heard of Billericay, some people who think of Towie, because they've vaguely heard of it. But people who know the church say, oh, brilliant, that must be a great place to train. And I say, yeah, it is, it's, it's brilliant, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know. I wouldn't tell you even if I wasn't saying that. <laughs> but you see, our reputation's good. But we should make sure that everything that we do honours that reputation, is worthy of that reputation. We should be constantly re-earning that reputation. That's not just in outreach, that's in, that's in being together. Our reputation, um, it seems, is one that quite a sociable church. Look around you. How many people in this room now have you invited into your home and broken bread with? It's a challenge. But if you've got a reputation as being welcoming and loving and, and sociable, of caring for each other, we shouldn't wait until things go wrong and we need one another and then, and then all come together to pray. We should be an, it should be an ongoing relationship. We should be building each other up all the time, supporting each other, sharing together. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
strengthen for the days ahead. We don't know what's coming. We don't know the challenges that the church might face. There are some churches that are going to be facing closure because of this pension deficit. They knew nothing about it years, uh, a few years ago, and suddenly their future has gone from looking quite stable to looking bleak. We never know what's around the corner. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, of course, our deeds are never complete. We can never take our foot off the gas and say, brilliant, we've done all we can, we've, we've, we've converted all the people we're going to convert. Our deeds will never be complete. And so we should never stop working. We should never stop enduring and persevering and working hard. Remember, therefore, verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Once again, the church called to repentance. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. You see, if we, if we, if we obey the instruction to repent, to come before God and repent, then we too, on that day when we are before God, we will be dressed in white. We will be asked to walk with him. The church in Philadelphia. In verse 8, I know your deeds. Sound familiar? <laughs> Should do by now. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. I know that you're struggling. I know that this is hard work. I know. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What a great endorsement for a church to receive. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. And then in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. As soon as we let go of the Bible, as soon as we don't use the, let the word of God be our guiding light, then the crown slips. The church's position is weakened. As soon as we start bowing to what the world demands, as soon as we start liberalising the word of God and, and stretching the boundaries and hiding away from, from the awkward teachings and the awkward instructions, as soon as we do that, someone can take the crown because suddenly we're not serving God. Suddenly we're trying to compromise. It weakens our position. I am coming soon. We don't know when. We don't know what soon means. It's one of those terms which is impossible to define. But one thing we do know, Jesus is coming again. So finally, the church in Laodicea. 
These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation once again. I know your deeds, verse 15. I know your deeds. But this one isn't so good, is it? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. For goodness sake, don't sit on the fence, make a decision. You're either for me or you're not. It's no good being a lukewarm church. It's no good. It's no good trying to please both um, man and, and God. You can't do it. Don't be lukewarm. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is a letter to a church. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm fed up with you pussyfooting around, sitting on the fence, trying to please everyone. Are you for me or are you not? Harsh words. But in verse 19, we're reminded, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. For all the harsh, harsh words and the difficulties that are, that are contained in these letters, and we might read them and think, wow, if, if we received that in a church office, God, dear, oh dear, that would be, that'd be difficult to take. That would be pretty awful. That would be a, a pretty damning judgment. Actually, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. It's because, it's because of God's love for the church. He so desperately wants us to get it right that he sends these letters to these churches. So be earnest and repent once again. That theme of repentance, there's a message here. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. These messages are born out of love. They are born out of love. So let's, let's make sure that we listen at the door. We listen for the knock on the door. Let's make sure that as a church we don't miss that. But also, just to finish tonight, I want us to think back a week. This time last week... You would have been rather wet if you were standing here, as Gary and I were. We had a baptismal service. And it was one of those services, often, often we sort of, well, we always talk about the Holy Spirit being present in a service. Um, but often you kind of get the feeling that the Holy Spirit sort of gently enters unannounced and sits there and the flames of the Holy Spirit burning are very much like a pilot light on a boiler. There, keeping us ticking over. Well, last week, the Holy Spirit kicked the doors in and blasted us with a flamethrower. There was a tangible sense of the Holy Spirit in this building. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful evening. It was a privilege to be part of it. And the thing that really struck me was that the two girls who got baptised, Ella and Amelia, they, they were just moved, so moved by the whole event. They felt so touched by different verses that were given to them, um, the, the, the worship, the, the, the sermon, the baptism itself, the prayers. They felt so moved by the whole evening. This sense of the Spirit. Everyone was smiling. It was such a positive experience. In the book of Ephesus, it says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
So let's just think back. What was our first love? I was trying to think what mine was. I remember crying when England got knocked out of Italia 90 on to Germany in the semi-finals, penalty shootout. It was, it was painful. It was awful. I loved that team. I loved the fact that they were, they were going, they're going to win the World Cup. I was convinced of it. I remember the similar feelings in Euro 96 as well, and the same thing happened. I was very fortunate to meet Jo, my now wife, when she was 15, I was 16. And we grew up together. We went from being kids to being adults, and we got married. Jo was my first love. I cherish her, and I love her still, dearly. Now, we were very fortunate, very blessed in that sense. For a lot of people, they'll think back to their first love and they might not want to, might not want to have the conversation with their significant other. I, I appreciate that. But when we think back, the first love is kind of is the first, the first realisation, the first excitement. Someone who just walks into a room and you just immediately can't take your eyes off them. You, you want to be with them, you want to be talking to them, you want to spend as much time as possible with them, share experiences with them. Because they're your first love, the first person you feel attached to, a connection with. But as time goes on, if we're not careful, if we, don't, if we don't remember that time, then we can begin to stagnate and take things for granted. On my wedding day, I remember Carl Beach, who married us here, um, he said to me and Joe, remember this day, remember this day. And in the difficult times, when you have your little, little arguments from time to time, or when, when um, you're, you're struggling financially, or when there's a family tragedy, with, when things happen, which they will, remember this time. Remember this day. Remember how you feel about each other on this day, because you need to remember that to hold you together, to get you through. Last week, those two girls who got baptised felt that excitement in their faith. They felt that connection to Jesus. They felt that, that yearning for the Holy Spirit. And they've both been on cloud nine ever since because they feel that connection. I don't think they've stopped smiling since then. The excitement, because it's their first spiritual love. And so is the church. Let's make sure that we don't get complacent we don't get weak, we don't get lukewarm, we don't get ungrateful, distracted, incomplete. When we think, when we, when we, when we greet our first love, I'm not talking about first girlfriend or boyfriend years and years ago from childhood, I'm talking about the, the love that should be number one in our lives, our, the love that comes first in our hearts, our love for Jesus, our love for the church. Jesus loves the church. Instead, of letting ourselves become complacent, weak, lukewarm, ungrateful, distracted, incomplete. Instead, chapter 2, verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. Do the things that brought you to Christ. Remind yourself where your faith was born, where it comes from, the experience it was that, that had that light bulb moment that triggered your faith, whatever it was. Remind yourself of that. Your first love. And then make sure that your love for Christ still comes first in your life today. As a church, let's not forget our first love. Let's pray.
Lord God, we love you. Lord God, we recognise you as our Father. We recognise you as our King, as our Lord, as our Saviour. We've remembered tonight at the communion table the love that you have for us. Father, we pray that as we have looked back over the letters that were sent out to those seven churches, as we identify the the good points and the bad points, the positives and the negatives that we can apply to our church and ourselves, Lord, we pray that you will hear us as we come back to you and we say, Father, for when we get it wrong, for when we let you down, for when we fail you, for when we don't even consider you, we ask for your forgiveness. We repent of our sins. And Father, we give thanks that just as our love for you should come first in our lives, we know that your love for us comes first for you. Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you that it's never too late for us to pour our heart out to you, to praise you, to worship you, and to turn to you once again and say, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.